0: What we're going to do as we launch into the Gospel of John is back up and take a running leap at it. By that I mean we're going to have an introduction to the Gospel of John. This time as we come to study, there's so many things that are unique about John and his Gospel that we need to have an introduction. Sometimes I get a little bit excited about a book and don't take the time to do an introduction, but I felt like we just absolutely had to this time. So we're going to do that. We're going to have an introduction to the Gospel of John. And there are four things I'm going to be focusing on as we go through our introduction together. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down. First of all, I thought it would be good if we talked about his unique person. John is so very unique. We need to talk about that. And then I thought we could talk, secondly, about his unique privileges that he had with Jesus Christ Third, we could talk about his unique perspective, the things he writes and doesn't write in his gospel. And the fourth thing is that we could talk about his unique purpose in writing the book. Why did he write the book? He tells us very plainly and we'll end up with that. So let's begin by talking about his unique person, the composite characteristics of his life. What came together to make John the man and the apostle that he was? First of all, we could talk about his background If you look in the Bible and study the Gospels, you will find that John came from a fairly well-to-do family. They were active in the Bible, and by that I mean you can find the name of his father, Zebedee, in the Bible. You can find the name of his mother, Salome, in the Bible. You find the name of his brother, James, in the Bible. In fact, we find James and John at many different places. And James, of course, is a famous apostle that we know about in the Bible. So his family is active in the Bible and named Mother, Father, Brother, And all of this. And John, we know from the Bible that they were fairly well off because in Mark 1.20, we are told that they had hired servants. They had a fishing business. They evidently lived in Capernaum, which is up on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And there it seems that they were in partnership with Simon Peter. So that they had this fishing business together on the Sea of Galilee and they did well at it. So he came from a fairly prosperous but extremely hard-working family. John would have then been somebody who was close to Jesus. If you look at his family ties, if you compare some of the scriptures, you find out that it seems that his mother was the sister of Jesus' mother, which would then possibly make John Jesus' first cousin. So it seems that they were related, his mother and Jesus' mother. So that John then could have been the cousin of Jesus, which would then explain in some sense why he chose him to look out for Mary when he was hanging on the cross because he was in fact family. And it seems to be a good case for that in the Bible if you do some comparison of the text. He was uh, one of the first disciples to be called by Jesus. We find that in Mark chapter 1 and verse 19 and 20. I'll just read it to you. Says when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So he was one of the very first disciples to be called by the Lord, which is interesting when you see how it all ends up. So that's his background. Let's talk about his personality. His personality was actually very feisty. He was a fiery individual. There is a very popular misconception that John was some sort of a meek and mild, pale-skinned, effeminate type guy that was always going around with his head laying on Jesus' shoulder and sort of staring up at him with a dove-eyed stare all the time. I think that some of those misconceptions come from There's a legend that John used to go around when he was old just saying, just love the brethren, just love the brethren. He's known for his love. But it is a very strong misconception to think of him as this lightweight, starry-eyed guy who spoke in soft tones and probably had these, you know, fluffy little outfits on all the time. He was a fisherman. I don't know if any of you have ever been around fishermen. I lived on Kodiak Island one time in Alaska for about six months. And I was around fishermen every single day of those six months. I have never seen such rugged, rough, and vulgar individuals in my life. It's absolutely incredible. You get in the hole of a boat with those guys and it can be frightening. They think nothing of getting drunk up there and throwing somebody off the dock in a fight and the guy freezes to death in the water in minutes. All the time up there they have guys disappearing off these boats. They'll come and find boats with nobody on them they don't know what happened to them. Well, a rival fishing company perhaps got in a brawl with them, and you find an empty boat. They're rugged people. They really are. So when you think of John, you must think of him as a fisherman, as a rugged individual, tanned and rough, with calluses on his hands, a tough guy. He was somewhat of an intolerant individual. He was ambitious. He was zealous. And we know that he was explosive. There is plenty of evidence in the Bible to tell us that this is what he was really like. For example, turn in your Bible. Could you, to the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 9 to verse 52, get an idea of what I'm saying about his character? They were passing through a Samaritan village, and the people there were not really very receptive to Jesus. And so we get a little bit of John's character here. In Luke 9, 52, it says that they sent messengers there before his face, and as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. And then as Jesus came, it says, But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And then we read this in verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, that they didn't receive the Lord, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? So here's their character. You think this is a lightweight little starry-eyed guy. This is a guy that wants fire, lightning to come out of heaven and french fry these people because they're rejecting Jesus. This is an explosive individual. And when Mark writes of Jesus appointing the twelve, it is very interesting that he points out that Jesus basically permanently identified these character traits by the name that he gave to him and to his brother. Because in Mark 3.17, it says, James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James, to whom he, Jesus, gave this name Boanerges, which means the sons of thunder. So Jesus saw this explosive characteristic in John's life and his brother's life. They must have been always firing off like this. And finally he says, let's just give them a name that's appropriate. Sons of Thunder. And so the name was given by Jesus to them as a permanent identification of these character traits. Another thing about him that you find that indicates he was extremely ambitious is the fact that He wanted to have, him and his brother wanted to have the greatest seats in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, they wanted it so bad that they seemed to have played off the relationship in the family with the mothers. So they sent their mother to Jesus to work on Jesus to bring this to pass. Turn in your Bible, could you, to Matthew to chapter 20 and we could see it together. Matthew chapter 20 to verse 20. This is a very dramatic situation. You just imagine how graphic and alive Jewish people are when they talk, and when they're really feeling something emotionally, they want to communicate it. Closest thing I know to it is my wife, who's Armenian, and they're very similar. And when they're feeling something very strong, they're very animated, and you know they do a lot of this. And so here comes the mother of Zebedee's sons. You can see her moving very quickly toward Jesus. The sons are sort of trailing along behind like this, like, we're not involved in this. It says that she came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. So she comes and just throws herself dramatically at his feet. And he said to her, What is it that you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Now, we know that they put their mother up to this because Jesus responds to them really more than the mother. Look at what happens here. Verse 22, Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and to be baptized with the baptism I am about to be baptized with? And they said to him, that would be the brothers, We are able... So in verse 23, he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Now we know for sure they put their mother up to this because the other ten are watching this. Look what happens in verse 24. It says, And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. In other words, guys, can you believe it? They have the nerve to push out from us, to get their mother, to plan the relationship, and ask for the greatest seats in the kingdom of God. And they were really mad at these two guys. So I say again, we're dealing with a very ambitious, very explosive character here when we talk about John and his personality. Well, we've seen his background and his personality. Let's talk about his alias. He has an alias, you know. You know what an alias is? An alias is a name that you take that's not really your name, but you take it and you go by that. The alias that John has is found in the book that he has written. It is the alias that goes like this. It's a phrase that that he uses to describe himself, the disciple whom, you know it, Jesus loved. That's his alias. Now, It's only used by John. The other guys in their Gospels don't write, and then, of course, the disciple whom Jesus loved said. They don't write that way. Only John uses it. It is a term that's used five times in the Gospel of John. Initially, I remember reading that years ago When somebody said to me, when I first got born again You need to read the Gospel of John before you do anything else And I remember coming along and reading that The disciple whom Jesus loved, who is this guy? And then I said, who is this? And some friend said, well that's John himself And I said, what? He calls himself a disciple whom Jesus loved? I mean, how proud can you get? I've just been born again and I know that's pride The problem is, I was wrong. It is not pride. It is not a statement of pride. It is a statement of assurance and of awe. You see, think about what we just learned about this man. He's explosive. He's ambitious. This is the man who wanted to burn up all the Samaritans. He cannot believe that Jesus would love him so much when he has seen that kind of character displayed. This is the man that wanted the highest seat in the kingdom of God that he didn't deserve. He cannot believe that Jesus would love someone like him with the love that he has loved him with. He is in absolute awe as he writes this gospel. That with all of his bad traits, all of his character flaws, Jesus has shown him as much love as he really has. He is in absolute amazement to the very end of his life. He never got over it that Jesus could love him so much. And the other thing is that he's absolutely assured that he loved him that much and for good reason. Because in spite of all the bad things that Jesus saw about him, he continued to love him, he continued to draw close to him. It is said that when Charles Spurgeon lay dying, he said this as he got close to his death He said, I hang my whole eternity on this that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He said with that knowledge that he loves me based on his infallible word where he has told me I can die and go into eternity. You see, for good reason John was assured that Jesus loved him. For good reason Charles Spurgeon when he lay dying was assured that Jesus loved him. For good reason every one of us can take the same alias that John had. We can think of ourselves I am the disciple or disciplette. I am the disciple... Whom Jesus loves I have good reason to believe that Jesus loves me And I thank God that he does And I thank God that he loves me After all these years And so I can say with John I am the disciple whom Jesus loves And I have very good reason to say that So you look at this guy You see his background, his personality, his alias And you begin to realize This is a pretty amazing fellow This guy is pretty amazing And what happened is that when he submitted those character traits of explosiveness and ambitiousness and all the things that he had, when he submitted those things over to the Lord, God was then able to use those as strengths. What had previously been, you might say, liabilities or weaknesses in his life became strengths in his life as they were yielded to the Spirit of God. Think about how amazing John is. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but think about this. Jesus never had to ask John if he loved him but he asked Peter that how many times? three times Jesus never had to ask John to follow him but he asked Peter that in John 21-22 to follow him when it came down to passing out the work he said to Peter feed my sheep you know what he said to John? hanging from the cross he said take care of my mother you see he was a very special man Tradition tells us that he took the mother of Jesus and he took care of her, and he never left Jerusalem until Mary died. He kept the vow that he made to the Lord. He was a very unique person, and so it is this person that comes to pen the Gospel of John. But not only was he a unique person, but he had some very unique privileges. You see, John was part of our Lord's inner circle. He was part of our Lord's inner circle. That's one of his first unique privileges. This is so instructive. Jesus, being God come to earth, chose to disciple some individuals. He knew exactly how many men he could work with and still be effective to teach them what needed to be taught so that when he was gone from them, they could go on and carry on the work. It is amazing to me that he only chose 12 to work closely with. When you read your Bible, you will discover that there are lists of the twelve apostles. And you will find in those lists that they are divided into three groups. Groups of four. Three groups of four. You will always find the same guys listed in the first group. Always. In the first group, you will find Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Always. John is always named in that first group. Now, you then go on to read your Bible and you will discover that that first group is the one that he worked the closest with out of the three groups. He found he could work closely with 12 men during his three-year ministry on this earth. He found further that he could work closest with four men out of those 12. Most effectively, really interact with them the most while maintaining a relatively close relationship with the others in uh, relationship to everybody else that was following him. Well, out of those four, he worked even closer with Peter and James and John. And then out of that group, you find Peter and John hanging around together a lot, being very close to our Lord. It's very interesting to see how this all works out, but he was definitely part of the inner circle of friends in our Lord's life. So he was part of our Lord's inner circle, and certainly that was a unique privilege, had a very dramatic impact on his life for a special reason. He was also part of our Lord's special experiences, if I could call it that. He was allowed in on certain occasions, certain events, where the other disciples were not allowed in. For example, turn in your Bible. Let's look at one of those special occasions. These things went together to form who John was in the end by the time he wrote this gospel. Mark chapter 5 to verse 35. And this is an incident where John is allowed to go all the way in when Jesus raises somebody from the dead. A very significant event. Mark 5:35 is where we can pick it up. And while this is the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead, while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And then this, And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Nobody else could go with him. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead but sleeping. And now all of their wailing turns to ridicule. In verse 40 it says they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, which would be who? Peter and James and John. And he took them and he entered where the child was lying. He wanted them to see this. And then it says, He took the child by the hand and He said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise immediately. The girl arose and walked for she was 12 years of age and they were overcome with great amazement, I guess. I imagine for the rest of his life. You see, he had the unique privilege of getting in on that when others didn't. Only two other men as a part of their group got to see that. He was also a part of the transfiguration experience when Jesus took Peter and James and John, the Bible says in Mark 9-2, and he led them into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. What a thrilling event that was. Moses and Elijah showed up, and God spoke out of the sky, and Jesus turned blazing white. It was as if God the Son veiled in human flesh that veil of flesh eclipsing the glory that he had with the Father before the world was, it was as if suddenly he just pulled back the curtain for just a moment and he began to shine radiantly in front of them. Writing about it, one of the writers says it was such a white, bright light. There's nothing on earth that could even be compared to it. I've never seen anything like it and you never will. It was the glory of God. Well, John was allowed to be in on that experience. And another great event in the life of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can read it with me in Mark chapter 14, if you turn there in your Bible, to verse 32. This is something I didn't realize for years reading the Bible. But it says in Mark fourteen thirty-two. Then they came to the place which is named Gethsemane, that's the Garden of Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, look at this, sit here while I pray. As they got to the gate of the garden, Jesus said to most of the disciples, you guys stay here. Basically, keep an eye on things. Then you read, he took Peter and James and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. So he left the main group of the disciples out at the gate. And then he went on into the interior of the garden, knowing what waited for him there. When you see the agony he went through there, when you see him agonizing, and literally the Bible says in the original language, he was just rolling in the dirt in agony. And you see him sweating blood and praying and agonizing to the Father, you realize the reason he took those three men is because they were just quite simply his best friends. And in the greatest hour of pain in his life, He simply wanted to have his best friends near to him. Not really that they could do a whole lot, but just to be there with him, to go through it with him. And so he says to them, you guys sit and pray with me. Watch and pray. Next thing you know, he comes back and they're asleep. So he wakes them up. Come on, wake up. Well, by now it's late. It's about one o'clock in the morning. They're tired. They'd had a long day. Behind them is a long discourse and the Last Supper and all that happened the day before that. They're exhausted. But still, he's going through the greatest pain of his whole life. Who does he have with him but his best friend simply to be there with him to help shoulder the pain? Peter, James, and John. And so when you begin to look at this man's life, you realize he had some very unique privileges with Jesus Christ that went into making up the kind of apostle that he became and the kind of writer that he became. So what have we seen so far? We have seen his unique person, and we have seen his unique privileges. Let's go on and talk now about, get a little more into his gospel, and talk about his unique perspective in writing his gospel. There's a couple of different things that go into making up the uniqueness of his gospel. One is that if you look at it all, you realize that he had the fullest experience He had the fullest experience. By the time he wrote his gospel, of all the writers, he had the fullest experience. Think about this man's life. To begin with, he had lived through a very marvelous time. He had lived through seeing the Son of God, God himself really, come down to this earth, incarnated in the body of a man born as a baby in Bethlehem. He had lived through that. He had lived to see Him baptized in the River Jordan, there by Jericho, taken up high on top of the mountains near Jericho into that wilderness area where He was tempted by the devil for 40 days. He had lived through that. He had been proved and tempted and proved and tempted and shown to be sinless. He had watched Jesus heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. He had seen Him make the blind see, the deaf hear, the dumb speak. He had seen the lame walk. He had watched water turned into wine. He had seen him walk on the waves, feed the hungry multitudes with a handful of bread. He had listened to him teach God's truth in a penetrating way, in a way that had never been taught before, pointed, penetrating, an absolutely memorable way so that when people would get done listening to Jesus, the Bible said they would be astonished at what they had heard. He had lived through this. He had lived to see love incarnate, God, become manifest in the flesh. Oh yes, he had seen some great things in his life. But he had also lived to see the God-man, Jesus Christ, betrayed and falsely accused. He had lived through that as well. There's a very amazing passage in John chapter 18. Why don't you turn there and we'll read that together. It's one you may have never quite seen in reading by. Because our focus is so often on Peter, you may not have seen what else happens in these verses. But John had lived to see Jesus betrayed and falsely accused, I believe, in a very personal way. In John 18, 15, it says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus. Let's stop right there. You remember at the Last Supper, Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me. In fact, all of you will deny me. And Peter says, I never will, and all of this. We all know that account. Well, then you remember, Jesus is in the garden. Judas comes with the soldiers to take him away. And there's that whole incident there where Peter cuts off Malchus' ear, the servant of the high priest. Jesus heals the ear and all of that. Then they take Jesus away. And the Bible tells us at that time in the scriptures that everybody basically fled. Now, from that point, Peter sneaks along and follows Jesus. Now, we all get really down on Peter and the fact that he denied Jesus until we begin to discover, yes, but he did follow along after him when everybody else fled. We've got to give him credit for that. Kind of like when he sank walking on the water, but he was the only one who got out of the boat to walk on the water to get to Jesus. Oh, we've got to give him credit for that. But there's somebody who's kind of lurking in the shadows here, It seems to never get any credit. And if you read here, it says in John 18, 15, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another who? Disciple. Isn't that interesting? I always see Peter sneaking off alone, and getting in there in the courtyard of the high priest, and having this whole dialogue, and then denying the Lord. I always imagine he's completely alone. But then you read that, Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Why isn't he named? You would assume the writer would name him. But because the writer never even names his own name in his own gospel, but rather takes an alias... The disciple whom Jesus loved. It seems very, very natural that when you read another disciple, oh, here's his sneaky thing again, won't name himself. Too humble, really. But you read, so another disciple, you say, ah, that was John Mark. No, he's already ran off naked, left his clothes in the hands of the people that caught him. He's gone, long gone. This seems to be John. So here we find out that now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Peter's still outside the gate. But Peter stood at the door outside. He can't even get in. He can't even get in to have his denial. So we read, Peter stood at the door outside in verse 16, and the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door, and he brought Peter in. Seems to me that what happened is that this was, in fact, John. Yes, everybody else forsook the Lord and fled. Peter snuck off, but John went with him. Like later when they went to the tomb. They had their race to the tomb. They were always together anyway. So here John knows somebody on the inside. Gets in, talks the person at the door into letting him in also. He got Peter in. Then, of course, we know Peter denied the Lord. We don't see one thing about this other disciple denying the Lord in the same courtyard on the same pressure. That is amazing to me. If it is indeed John, I believe it is, then it would say a lot about him, wouldn't it? An awful lot about him. Especially if you go a little further. You realize he saw Jesus betrayed and falsely accused, but further than that, he personally saw Jesus manhandled and mauled and crucified and buried when all the others were long gone. We are told in Matthew 26, 56, But this was all done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. But when you get to the cross, there is the name of one disciple given at the cross. And it's given in this same alias form. So that you find at the cross, only one of the men left. The women are at the cross. The men are gone. Now, I don't have any commentary on that whatsoever. But I'm sure you women like that. It's a sad commentary on the men. They're gone, they're hiding. But John is there. So that when you get to the cross, you realize he had a personal eyewitness account while the other guys were hiding. Because in John 19.26, if you turn there in your Bible, it speaks of Jesus hanging on the cross. He's concerned about his mother. Evidently, Joseph was dead by then. And there's no one to take care of his mother. It says, verse 26, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by, whom he loved, that's John, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he points at John. Then he says to John, the disciple, in verse 27, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her unto his own home. So it appears, if you link it all together, that the one that went the farthest and got through it all, didn't deny the Lord, was there when Peter did, is John. And so you have to understand the amazing character and strength of this man. And to have him be the one that personally saw the Lord go through all of that while the other guys were gone. And then another thing is that he personally stood in the freshly opened empty tomb. These are all very unique privileges that God graced him with. And they are very, very important. And then the unique perspective that he imparts to us. Because these are things he went through. But you find if you turn to John 20, that he personally stood in the freshly opened empty tomb. Now many people have been in that tomb since. But oh, to get there when it had just opened. To be one of the first people in there before the grave clothes had been moved or touched. To see how it was all arranged. That is a very unique perspective that he had and he shared it with Peter. But he got in there and he understood what it all meant. In verse 3 of John 20, it says, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, typical description, and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter. He was faster than Peter. And he came to the tomb first, but he stopped. And stooping down, verse 5, and looking in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. So he's just standing there going, whoa. Meanwhile, Peter, who's slower, catches up and he goes, Look, fella, if you're not going in, get out of the way for somebody who will. And then, boom, he goes right on in by him. And he figures, hey, he's in, I'm going in. So they both go in. You can imagine how they felt. This is one of the most incredible moments in all of human history. Then Simon Peter came following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the claws lying there. And this, the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Which is to say this, as you see where the body of Jesus was laying... Here are the great cloths that they had wrapped around him in, in mummy style. There was a separate cloth that had been wrapped around his head. Separate from the, the stuff wound around his whole body. So here they are separate. And they are laying in perfect condition, meaning that Jesus had just literally passed up through them and did not even disturb them. Had someone come and stolen the body, they would have either taken him with all the clothes and just hustled him out of there, which they would have done in a hurry. They certainly would not have had time to unravel all of the stuff wrapped around him. And so this is a grand statement that he raised in a spiritual body. It is a grand statement that nobody could have stolen his body because the clothes wouldn't be lying that way in perfect order. It is a grand statement that a very true, very real, unprecedented resurrection has taken place here. It's as though all of the wet cement of truth that was there within him from the last three years suddenly solidified and became concrete, rock-solid truth and all of a sudden everything clicked and he understood it all. It all became very clear to him. For as yet he did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. He did not understand what Jesus had been telling him. And now it clicked. So I say to you, this man lived through a very marvelous time. And all of these experiences go in toward the perspective that he gives us in his gospel. Furthermore, he outlived all the apostles. When he wrote this gospel there in Ephesus... He was living as a very lonely old man. He was the last of the apostles. As he sat down to write, if you just imagine everything we've just talked about, just imagine him going back now in his mind to the beginning and all the memories that would be lingering there in his heart and the very innermost thoughts of a very old man. He's thinking back through his old friends and how they walked and talked with Jesus. And he realizes, well, my brother James, he's dead. Peter... What a great guy he was, leading apostle to the Jews, he's dead. He thinks of Paul who came later, so divinely called of God and all of the writing, that great minister to the Gentile world, he's gone. He thinks of Thomas and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel and all the apostles, and they're all dead except one, and it's him. You can just imagine the memories that go through his mind. And think of this, by this time, Here is this aged man sitting there taking his pen to write, By this time John knew the truth about Jesus Christ as no other living human being on earth. It is with that experience and that depth that he begins to write in a very unique perspective that has come down to us as the Gospel of John. And that is one of the reasons it is so wonderful. He had the very fullest experience. And he writes, out of that experience to give us his perspective. Further, when he was done, he had the final explanation. The final explanation. You see, it seems that by the time he picked up his pen to write... Everything else was done. The other three Gospels were done. He had them available to him. Paul had written his epistles. The Jewish brethren had written their general epistles. So that now, the only thing left to be written was his Gospel, his very brief epistles, and, of course, his marvelous work, the book of Revelation, that was to come to him from the Lord. And so, it seems that, in a very real sense, he had the final explanation, because you begin to realize this when you look at what he left out. You look at what he left out. When you come to pick up John's gospel, you will realize there is no genealogy. Then you will realize there's no manger scene. Then you realize there's no boyhood account of Jesus. There's no baptism account of Jesus. There's no account of the temptation of Jesus. Neither is there the account of the transfiguration, nor is there the account of Gethsemane. You don't find the scribes. You don't find the lepers. You don't find the publicans. You don't find the demoniacs. And there are no parables in John's writing. It's as though he sat with the other Gospels pouring over them and thought, well, there's no further need to record all of these things. It's been done flawlessly and so well. And then he began to pray and wait upon God. And as he deliberately now is cognizant of the things that he needs to leave out, He begins to write what he needs to put in. And thus, the gospel of John begins to flow. And when you begin to look at it, you realize that if you go to the original language and look at it, John wrote in the simplest terms. It's absolutely amazing. His vocabulary is very, very small, about 600 words. It is the equivalent of a seven-year-old child that he writes with. A child learning about 100 words a year in their vocabulary. What makes this gospel all the more amazing is that with the simplest phrases, the simplest sentences written in the simplest possible language, he imparts to us the most staggering, deep, mystical, profound truths to be found anywhere in the Word of God. Somebody used to say, some old preacher, that when you preach the Word of God, Keep it so simple that even the simplest can understand. That doesn't mean you're simplistic, but it does mean you keep it simple. So that one old great saint used to say, in other words, keep the cookies on the lower shelf where the children can get to them. I like that. And if ever there was an example of that, it's John when he takes up his pen to write. He puts the cookies on the lower shelf. He uses this very simple vocabulary, but he writes these profound truths so that even the simplest person can read John and get blessed. But I'll tell you something, you finish reading it, you've gleaned so much, you read it again and again and again, you find you've read it for the 10th, 15th, 20th time in your life and you still have yet to plumb the depths of the knowledge of God that is there. It's amazing, absolutely amazing, the staggering truths that are here and John has done this by the inspiration of God for us. And he did it using his favorite words. You know what are the favorite words of John you find in his gospel? Father, used more than any other of his favorite words. Believe, world, Jews. Another favorite word is know. That relationship with Jesus, abide is a favorite word of John, life, light, love, truth. These are the favorite words of John. Through his favorite words, he communicates the heart of his gospel. Another thing that happens in his unique perspective when he writes is that he he records discourses, sermons, talks, speeches from Jesus that are given nowhere else. You must go to John to read them. For example, one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament is John 17, our Lord's high priestly prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones loved that passage so much. Do you know that he preached so many sermons that they have now published four volumes on the chapter 17 of the Gospel of John? Four volumes of sermons It took Lloyd-Jones the equivalent of four books to preach through the Gospel of John chapter 17. That's how deep it was to him. You find those things only in John. So many things, for example, John carefully records his miracles like the wedding at Cana, the wine that was made at Cana. John records that. You find also in John the famous I am sayings. You know those sayings we love so much? It is in John, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is in John that Jesus says, I am the vine, and he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Perhaps the greatest one of the I am statements of all that you find in John is in chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus said, I say most assuredly to you, before Abraham was, I am. A directly crystal clear penetrating statement that he was in fact God. Doesn't get any clearer than that. But you must go to John to get these truths. So his unique person, we see his unique privileges, go together to form his unique perspective. And all of that then crystallizes and focuses on one very unique purpose in the gospel of John. And that is found in chapter 20 in verse 31. We don't need to spend a lot of time on this. It is so very clear. His unique purpose is to show the divinity and the deity of Jesus Christ, that he came from God and that he was God. And he says that in John 20, verse 31. John writes, But these things are written, and I'll tell you why I've written all of this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. That's his purpose. Now, brethren, I want you to know, if you don't know it already, this is a very, very powerful book we are about to study. And I want to close our time of introduction here with an account of how powerful this book can be. It is a story of someone who came to interact with its power. It's fairly lengthy, but you'll be glad I read the whole thing to you when I'm done. John MacArthur shares this story. He says, Not long ago, a man I had never met before walked into my office and said, I need help. I feel strange in coming to you because I'm not even a Christian. I'm Jewish, and until a few weeks ago, I had never even been in church, but I need help from someone, so I decided to talk to you. I assured him, John says, I would do my best to help him. I asked him to sit down and explain what was troubling him. The conversation went something like this. I've been divorced twice, he said, and now I'm living with a woman who is my lover. I don't even like her, but I haven't got the courage to leave her and go back to my second wife. I'm a medical doctor, he continued, and worse, I am an abortionist. I kill babies for a living. Last year in my clinic, we did $9 million worth of abortions. I don't only do therapeutic abortions, he said. I do abortions for any reason. If a woman doesn't have a reason, I give her a reason. Six weeks ago, he goes on to say, I came to Grace Community Church on a Sunday morning and I've been coming every week since. He said, last week you preached a message called Delivered to Satan. He said, if there ever was anyone on earth who was delivered to Satan, it's me. I know I'm doomed to hell because of what I have done. I'm absolutely miserable and unhappy. I'm continually seeing a psychoanalyst, and I'm not getting any help at all. I can't stand the guilt of all this. I don't know what to do about it. Can you help me? John says to him, No, I can't help you. He says, What do you mean you can't help me? He looked at me, John, said, Startled. Sheer desperation was evident in his face. I let it sink in. Then I said, I can't help you, but I know someone who can help you. It's Jesus Christ. He said, sadly, but I don't even know who he is. I have been taught all my life not to believe in him. John said, would you like to know who Jesus Christ is? He said, I would if he can help me. Here's what I want you to do, John said. I reached over and took a Bible off my desk and I opened it to the gospel of John. I said, I want you to take this book home and read this part called the gospel of John. I want you to keep reading until you know who Jesus Christ is and then call me again. Later that week, I was recounting the incident for a pastor of another church. He said, is that all you gave him? Just the Gospel of John? Why didn't you give him some tapes or some helps or some questions to answer or something? Just the Bible? I said, don't worry, John said, the Bible's like a lion. You don't need to defend it. Just open the door and let it out. It'll take care of itself. If his heart is open at all, the Bible can do more to reach him than I could with reams of other study material. What could I possibly give him that's more powerful, I said, than the scripture itself? The next Friday, I received a phone call. The doctor wanted to see me again. We made an appointment. He showed up precisely on time, came into my, into the office and walked past me as if I weren't there, sat on the couch and dropped the Bible beside him and said, "I know who he is." "You do?" I said. He said, "Yes, I do." "Who is he?" I said. "I'll tell you one thing, he's not just a man." I said, "Really? Who is he?" "He's God," he said with finality. "He's God?" "Yes. He's God." I said, you, a Jew, are telling me that Jesus Christ is God, I asked. How do you know that? He said, it's clear. It's right there in the Gospel of John. What convinced you, I asked. Look at the words he said, the man responded. Look at the things he did. No one could say and do those things unless he was God. He was echoing John's thesis perfectly. I nodded enthusiastically. John writes, he says, he was on a roll. Do you know what else he did? He rose from the dead. They buried him, and in three days' time, he came back from the dead, and that proves he's God, doesn't it? God himself came into this world. I asked him, do you know why he came? Yes, he said, he came to die for my sin. How do you know that, I asked. The man said, because I like John so well that I went ahead and read all of Romans. (laughs) God's amazing. He wanted to say, and as soon as I clean up my life, I'm going to become a Christian. John responded, That's the wrong approach. Receive him as your Lord and Savior now and let him clean up your life. Then he asked the man, What would such a decision mean in your career? The man responded, Well, I spent this afternoon writing my resignation letter to the abortion clinic. And when I get out of here, I'm going to call my second wife and I'm going to bring her to church with me. And he did. Praise God, huh? For the power of God and the gospel of John. Well, we have much to look forward to as we study this great gospel together. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, this has been a good time. Just warming up for this great book. We are indeed excited, Lord, for the things that you have ahead for us. Continue, Lord, now to guide us and to lead us through our study together. And may our lives be transformed as we behold and wonder, as we see the great glory of the Son of God unfolded before us, study by study, week by week, line by line. And Father, we will be very careful to give you all the glory as together we are graced by you to plumb the depths of the knowledge of God. This is what we desire, Lord, and this is what we need. And we do ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.